The Relativity of Surplus Value by S. Artesian. In Chapter 20 of his Theories of Surplus Value, Marx writes, quote, The question, moreover, must be reduced to the following. How can a change in the value of constant capital retrospectively affect the surplus value? For once surplus value is assumed as given, the ratio of surplus to necessary labor is given, and therefore also the value of wages, i.e. their production cost. In these circumstances, no change in the value of constant capital can have any effect on the value of wages, any more than on the ratio of surplus labor to necessary labor, although it must always affect the rate of profit, the cost of production of the surplus value for the capitalist, and in certain circumstances, namely, when the product enters into the consumption of the worker, it affects the quantity of use values into which wages are resolved, although it does not affect the exchange value of wages." End quote. Later, in the same chapter, Marx expands on the theme, quote, Consequently, a rise in the rate of profit resulting from a fall in the value of constant capital has no direct connection whatever with any kind of variation in the real value of wages, that is, in the labor time contained in the wages. If we assume, as in the above case, that cotton falls in value by 50%, then nothing could be more incorrect than to say either that the production costs of wages have fallen, or that, if the worker is paid in cotton goods and receives the same value as he did previously, that is, if he receives a greater amount of cotton goods than he did previously, since although 10 hours, for example, still equal, equals 10 surplus hours, I can buy more cotton goods for 10 surplus hours than I could before, because the value of raw cotton has fallen. The rate of profit would remain the same. The rate of surplus value remains the same, but the rate of profit rises. The production costs of the product fall, because an element of the product, its raw material, now costs less labor time than previously. The production costs of wages remain the same as before, since the worker works the same amount of labor time for himself and the same for the capitalist as he did before. The production costs of wages do not depend, however, on the labor time which the means of production used by the worker cost, but on the time he works in order to reproduce his wages. According to Mr. Mill, the production costs of a worker's wage would be greater if, for example, he worked up copper instead of iron, or flax instead of cotton, and they would be greater if he sowed flax seed rather than cotton seed, or if he worked with an expensive machine rather than with no machine at all, but simply with tools. The production costs of profit would fall because the aggregate value, the total amount of the capital advanced in order to produce the surplus value, would fall. The cost of surplus value is never greater than the cost of the part of capital spent on wages. On the other hand, the cost of profit is equal to the total cost of the capital advanced in order to create this surplus value. It is, therefore, determined not only by the value of the portion of capital which is spent on wages and which creates the surplus value, but also by the value of the elements of capital necessary to bring into action the one part of capital which is exchanged against living labor. 
Mr. Mill confuses the production costs of profit with the production costs of surplus value. That is, he confuses profit and surplus value. This analysis shows the importance of the cheapness or dearness of raw materials for the industry which works them up, not to speak of the relative cheapening of machinery, even assuming that the market price is equal to the value of the commodity, that is, that the market price of the commodity falls in exactly the same ratio as do the raw materials embodied in it. End quote. Note that Marx is carefully distinguishing that the value of the constant capital does not change the value of the variable capital, of the workers' wages. Marx then continues, quote, Fifthly, now comes the real question. How far can a change in the value of constant capital affect the surplus value? If we say that the value of the average daily wage is equal to 10 hours, or what amounts to the same thing, that from the working day of, let us say, 12 hours, which the worker labors, 10 hours are required in order to produce and replace his wages, and that only the time he works over and above this is unpaid labor time, in which he produces values which the capitalist receives without having paid for them. This means nothing more than that the ten hours of labor are embodied in the total quantity of means of subsistence which the worker consumes. These ten hours of labor are expressed in a certain sum of money with which he buys the food. The value of commodities, however, is determined by the labor time embodied in them, irrespective of whether this labor time is embodied in the raw material, the machinery used up, or the labor newly added by the worker to the raw material by means of the machinery. Thus, if there were to be a constant, not temporary, change in the value of the raw material or of the machinery which enters into this commodity, a change brought about by a change in the productivity of labor which produces this raw material and this machinery, in short, the constant capital embodied in this commodity, and if, as a result, more or less labor time were required in order to produce this part of the commodity, the commodity itself would consequently be dearer or cheaper, provided both the productivity of the labor which transforms the raw material into the commodity and the length of the working day remain unchanged. This would lead either to a rise or to a fall in the production costs, i.e. the value of labor power. In other words, if previously, out of the 12 hours the worker worked 10 hours for himself, he must now work 11 hours, or, in the opposite case, only 9 hours for himself. In the first case, his labor for the capitalist, i.e. the surplus value, would have declined by half, from 2 hours to 1. In the second case, it would have risen by half, from 2 hours to 3. In this latter case, the rate of profit and the total profit of the capitalist would rise, the former because the value of constant capital would have fallen, and both because the rate of surplus value and its amount in absolute figures would have increased. This is the only way in which a change in the value of constant capital can affect the value of labor, the production cost of wages, or the division of the working day between capitalist and worker hence also the surplus value." End quote. This is the only way. 
That way being the reduction or increase in the value of the commodities equivalent to the value of the variable capital, the wage. Marx here has set the terms, so to speak, of what the productivity of labor can do, and while it can do a lot for profit, for reducing the costs of production, it cannot do that much for augmenting the rate of surplus value unless it contributes to a devaluation of the wage, and that devaluation has to be something other than a proportional reduction equivalent to the reduction in the aggregate labor power employed. For example, if there are 20 workers working 8 hours daily producing X number of use values with a surplus value rate of 100% or 4 hours, reducing the number of workers to 10 workers producing 8 hours requiring the same 4 hours to produce the value of daily wages, then producing the X number or even X plus Y numbers of use values does nothing to alter the rate of surplus value. Only if the value of the commodities required for the reproduction of the labor power declines, and therefore the wage declines, does relative surplus value increase. The law of value tells us that no matter how much less time is dedicated to the production of any single commodity, the aggregate value cannot be changed at the end of the working day. Increasing the production of rubber bands from 500 an hour to 500,000 an hour adds no greater increment of value to the total new value. Whatever the increase in value is marginal and marginalized, representing pre-existing value of the constant capital passed through to the product. The 500,000 have the same value added in the hour, or at the end of 8 hours, as the 500 had. No matter how fast a production unit may operate, an hour is an hour is an hour. The decline or devaluation of the wage is not one relative to the value of the constant capital deployed, but as the portion of the increment of the value added in the aggregate of production, the total working period. Value, after all, is proportional to and dependent upon the labor employed in production, not that expelled from production. Marx's analysis maintains a persistent ambiguity regarding the impact of the productivity of labor on the rate of surplus value. Marx holds that the rate of surplus value, the amplification of relative surplus value, is almost intractable in its individual, isolated, fragmented expression. This makes sense, too. We are, after all, dealing with a social relation of production and organization of social labor and the need for the commodity to straddle, transfer, and pass from private property to the socially necessary. The productivity that augments the rate of surplus value is the social productivity that reduces the socially necessary labor time required for the reproduction of the wage. It is made, in the main, of the productivity in agriculture and supplemented by the productivity in transportation. The determinant for the increase in the rate of surplus value has to be the decline in the wage. Marx easily and repeatedly travels or oscillates between these senses of productivity, identifying the disproportionate growth of constant capital and in particular the fixed assets and the production process with the increased rates of surplus value without questioning his own identification.
Further on, in chapter 20, he writes, quote, Secondly, the production costs of machinery, raw materials, in short, of constant capital, remain the same. But larger amounts of them may be required. Their value, therefore, grows in proportion to the growing amount used as a result of the changed conditions of production and the processes in which those elements enter as means of production. In this case, as in the previous example, the increase in the value of constant capital results, of course, in a fall in the rate of profit. On the other hand, however, these variations in the conditions of productions themselves indicate that labor has become more productive, and thus that the rate of surplus value has risen. For more raw material is now being consumed by the same amount of living labor, only because it can now work up the same amount in less time, and more machinery is now being used only because the cost of machinery is smaller than the cost of the labor it replaces. Thus, it is a question here of making up to a certain extent the fall in the rate of profit by increasing the rate of surplus value, and therefore also the total amount of surplus value. End quote. Now this is certainly not of, quote, this is the only way in which a change in the value of constant capital can affect the value of labor, the production cost of wages, or the division of the working day between capitalist and worker, hence also the surplus value. End quote. Productivity as productivity, as the increased output in use values per unit of labor time, or as the total output in the aggregate time, cannot increase the rate of surplus value. Only if productivity is valorized, that is to say, if the worker's wages decline as a portion of the value extracted in the working period, can surplus value be amplified. Indeed, when in Theories of Surplus Value, Chapter 4, Marx writes, quote, With a given length of labor time, this surplus value can only be increased by an increase of productivity, or at a given level of productivity by a lengthening of the labor time, end quote. We can only make sense of that first condition if and when the increase in productivity is across the board. When the value of the wage has declined without any proportional decline in the aggregate social time of production. It's not that individual unit or atomized capitalist exists only as an abstraction. Individual capitalists exist and act as individuals, but only as they act as agents of capital. Their individual actions are compelled by and from a common source, and a source of no great mystery, a law governing their own reproduction. A theoretical particle can explain and demonstrate a law of motion, but the law itself is an expression of dominant forces. No atomized individual capitalist, no individual sector of capitalists alone, can drive down the value of the commodities necessary for the reproduction of the labor power, even in agriculture, even in transportation. But all capitalists, acting as capitalists, driven by the need to reduce the costs of production, by the compulsion of accum accumulation that gets manifested in and through competition, can and do exactly that. The need, the determinants of profitability, the requirements of the law, generate a specific and universal, but not uniform, 
social development of the forces of production. No individual capitalist and no individual worker reproduces capital in isolation, as the capital relation to actually function must become dominant, must determine the mode of production as an actual mode, not as an isolated moment. The mode is what is reproduced in and by the activity of entire classes. This, of course, is what the law of value is, the relations between classes. The reproduction of capital means the expansion, extension of the classes and class relations. Marx is similarly strict. The only way relative surplus value can be generated in his examination of the relation of the productivity of labor to relative surplus value in Chapter 12 of Capital, Volume 1. Quote, Such a fall in the value of labor implies, however, that the same necessaries of life which were formerly produced in ten hours can now be produced in nine hours, but this is impossible without an increase in the productivity of labor. By increase in the productiveness of labor, we mean generally an alteration in the labor process, of such kind as to shorten the labor time socially necessary for the production of a commodity, and to endow a given quantity of labor with the power of producing a greater quantity of use values. In order to effect a fall in the value of labor power, the increase in the productiveness of labor must seize upon those branches of industry whose products determine the value of labor power, and consequently either belong to the class of customary means of subsistence, or are capable of supplying the place of those means. But the value of a commodity is determined not only by the quantity of labor which the laborer directly bestows upon that commodity, but also by the labor contained in the means of production. Hence, a fall in the value of labor power is also brought about by an increase in the productiveness of labor, and by a corresponding cheapening of the commodities in those industries which supply the instruments of labor and the raw material that form the material elements of the constant capital required for producing the necessities of life. But an increase in the productiveness of labor in those branches of industry which supply neither the, necess uh, the necessaries of life nor the means of production for such necessaries leaves the value of labor power undisturbed. End quote. Again, we have A. The productivity of labor is the increased output of use values in a unit of time. B. The productivity of labor has a connection to the increase in the rate of surplus value. C. The productivity of labor does not determine the increase in the rate of surplus value. D. The productivity of labor must be in areas that cause a decline in the value of the commodities equivalent to the value of the variable capital. E. Improved productivity of labor does not, in all cases, lead to increases in relative surplus value. Still, there is the Marx who persistently slips into an automatic identification of labor productivity with increased machinery in the production, which rel increased relative surplus value. In chapter 15, he is writing, quote, The immediate result of machinery is to augment surplus value and the mass of products in which surplus value is embodied. End quote. Well, no and yes. 
The immediate result is to increase the productivity of labor, amplifying output within a standard unit of time. This result does not result immediately in the augmentation of surplus value. The result on surplus value, on the contrary, is mediated, and it is mediated by the exchange relations of capitalism as to whether or not the machinery reduces the value of the labor power in a disproportionately greater amount than subsequent reductions in the total working period. Time is everything, wrote somebody 20 years before writing Capital. So how do we reconcile these conflicting expressions of Marx? Through bringing into the discussion the vague and highly elusive-to-measurement notion of the intensity of labor? Marx tries that, but the simple fact is that the exchange relations of capital are blind to intensity. Capital measures and is only measured by time. Intensity of labor is not quantifiable by time, and cannot be measured as distinct from productivity, that is to say, the reduced time necessary for the production of use values, which changes nothing regarding the total quantity of value. Marx provides no mechanism to measure intensity, to make different intensities exchangeable. He cannot. Time is everything, wrote somebody 20 years before writing Capital. The classic demonstration of relative surplus value requires a suspension of disbelief, in that it assumes a capitalist mode of production produced only one commodity, wheat. Workers produce wheat. Workers are paid in wheat. Capitalists own and exchange the wheat. Everything is expressed in wheat. I've seen the past, and it looked like Kansas. Anyway, case A. Labor time, LT, 10-hour working day. 200 bushels of wheat are produced in 10 hours, equals 20 bushels an hour. Necessary labor is 40 bushels to reproduce the labor power of the laborers. Is the wage is 2 hours of necessary labor time. Surplus labor is 160 bushels is 8 hours of surplus labor time. Ratio of surplus labor time to necessary labor time is the rate of surplus value, 8 to 2. Productivity improvements get us to case B. Labor time is 10 hours, 400 bushels of wheat are processed in 10 hours is 40 bushels an hour. Necessary labor time is 40 bushels is 1 hour of necessary labor time. Surplus labor time is therefore 400 minus 40 bushels divided by 40 bushels an hour, or 9 hours of surplus labor time. The rate of surplus value is 9 to 1. All is Jake in the land of wheat. The value of the wage has declined by half while the labor power is still being compensated at its value. Its value relation to the means of its own subsistence has not been degraded. Its relation to the capital value it itself creates has been so devalued. It is proportionately less, and capital is proportionately more, of the value created. Capital can and has expanded in mass and rate. This relation, of course, provides for a certain elasticity as the wage nominally declines, but in real, wheat terms, improves. Such was the case during the long deflation in the United States between 1873 and 1898. In that period, after declining one-third in the years to 1881, wages slowly recovered, sank, recovered again, ended up in 1898 about 7% below the 1873 mark. However, with the expansion of capital, 
the reduced production and circulation times, the wholesale price index declined some 65%, and the consumer price index sustained a 31% drop. Real wages in 1898 were approximately 22% above their 1873 level. That was then. But this is now, and we're not in Kansas anymore. We know that no individual capitalist and no individual sector of capitalist production operates in isolation, that all sectors are driven to invest in machinery to reduce the cost of production. We know that from the real history of our classic case. We know that the capitalist economy cannot exist as a single product economy, that the necessity of value requires in turn a universe of different products. We have to conclude that the productivity of labor required for improved rates of surplus value is a general social productivity, begetting amplified output over the entire mode of production and circulation. In our modern demonstration, we know that and we know that the increased surplus value appropriated is not appropriated always or solely by reducing the wage of the workers directly involved in the more productive endeavor but is appropriated from all workers with a specific reallocation of surplus value to the more productive enterprise. As a consequence, the less productive players are essential. We have Railroad A. Railroad A, using locomotive Series X, hauls 5,000 tons of freight, 100 miles, and 20 crew hours. Two-person train crew, 10 hours on duty. The haul rate is 4 cents per ton mile. The crew members each make $50 an hour, including benefits. The train operating costs, consisting of locomotive operating costs for fuel, maintenance and depreciation, track maintenance costs, signal maintenance, communications infrastructure maintenance, train dispatcher wages, mechanical inspections, clerical functions, etc., are $150 an hour. Railroad A revenues are... 0.04 per ton mile times 5,000 tons times, times 100 miles is $20,000, or $2,000 per hour. Railroad A train operating costs for trains using the X-Series locomotives are $150 times 10, plus $100 times 10, or $2,500, or $250 an hour. Railroad A net income is $17.50 per hour. The crew reproduces its entire wage about 35 minutes into the trip. Now, Railroad B has the same crew costs but uses locomotives of the Y series. These locomotives allow the crew to haul 10,000 tons, 100 miles, in 10 hours. The train operating costs are a bit higher than for trains using the X series, but not that much higher. And in fact, in almost all cases, unit operating costs decline with advances in locomotive technology. Anyway, for Railroad B, the train operating costs are $200 per hour. Railroad B revenues are 0.04 per ton mile times 10,000 tons times 100 miles is $40,000, or $4,000 per hour. The operating costs are $200 times 10 plus $100 times 10, $3,000 or $300 per hour. Income is $3,700 per hour, and the train crew reproduces its entire wage about 16 minutes into the trip. Wait, 
Shouldn't Railroad B be reducing its tariff from the 0.04 cent mark since its operating costs have declined? Indeed, but not all at once, and not right away. Railroad B will charge the standard tariff as long as it is the standard tariff, an example of socially necessary labor time, and that will be until overall costs for the entire industry are reduced by the general adoption of the Y-series locomotives. Regardless, A. No additional new value has been added by the increased productivity. B. No reduction of the wage occurs. The general social productivity that is pushed forward by Railroad B transfers existing surplus value to its operation as mediated by the exchange relations, the market prices, and the variance between socially necessary time and individual production or turnover time. The advance of the social productivity permits sufficient surplus time to be released and facilitates, on the use side, a further research and development of science and technology, b the experimentation and application of science and technology in and to the production time, c a reduction in turnover time for each individual cycle, then the formulation of marks for the production of more relative surplus value gets expressed and in the production of a relatively more surplus value. On the value side, capital has expanded. The value of capital has expanded and more labor power has been aggrandized. This is mediated by the exchange relations of capital, meaning of course cost reduction, price competition. The enterprises with sufficient resources to experiment apply, deploy the technology, deploy it as capital, and thus increase their own size, transferring significant pools of surplus value as their gain and as a loss to their competitors. Deploying these applications, this technology, this capital, however, means that competition will transfer the technology through exchange relations until what was a new advance is nothing but an old standard. The transfer of technology brings a halt to the transfer of value. The size of the capital runs up against the boundary of other capitals expanding, which boundary is in fact itself. Relatively more surplus value becomes overproduction.